Do you want to get rich overnight investing in speculative stocks or cryptocurrency? Well, unfortunately, this podcast is not for you because that is not the conversation we are having today with Canada's best-known fee-only financial planner, Jason Heath. Today, we talk about the evolution of the financial plan and financial trade-offs. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Hello and welcome back. Before we dive into this week's show, if you have been enjoying the guest on the podcast, please can you do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. I'd greatly appreciate it and it always makes my day. It was such a treat to have Jason on the podcast today. I have followed Jason's work for years online as I read his articles, his blog posts, and so much more of his work. I feel like he's had such a positive impact on the financial planning space. During this episode, we talk about how humans, how we're just not hardwired to deal with money. We then talk about many of the unseen benefits of financial planning, such as learning to become financially organized, having someone trusted to talk to, and so many other things that are hidden behind the numbers that we don't normally look at. We also talk about why connection and trust are so important when dealing with a financial planner and our spouse, partner, or whomever else we have financial conversations with. We then move towards talking about the evolution of a financial plan. First though, we talk about what is a financial plan? What benefits does it provide? Then we look at what will a financial plan look like in the future? And what value will it provide to the consumers? Jason then switches gears to talk about the importance of making sound financial decisions and the importance it has on our financial health. And Jason also shares his insights and knowledge on the crazy Canadian real estate market that is currently on fire and what role, if any, does it play in our financial plans. And we end the episode talking about making financial trade-offs and the value of balance balance in our life, balance with our money, and everything else. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, my guest is Jason Heath. For those of you who don't know who Jason is, Jason has been providing fee-only, advice-only financial planning since 2001 and is one of Canada's best-known fee-only financial planners. He is currently a personal finance columnist for the Financial Post, Money Sense, and the Canadian Money Saver, and regularly is featured in other publications like the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail. Jason has a Bachelor's of Economics from York University and is also a certified financial planner. He has a particular interest in working with clients with complex planning issues, especially related to retirement planning. On a personal note, Jason has three kids and lives with his wife in Pickering, Ontario. Jason, welcome to the show. Sean, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into these conversations. Before uh, we were recording a couple of weeks ago, I told you I've been following your your work online for years. So I just want to say I appreciate you taking the time to talk to myself and our audience today. Absolutely. So on our podcast, the goal is to explore the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. Mm-hmm. And I have found that an effective way to do this is exploring stories as we know the power of story has been recognized for centuries as a means to like engage our thinking, our emotion, and it tends to be a little, I guess, deeper than just giving a, an answer. Sure. So with that idea of stories, Jason, why don't you tell us who is Jason Heath? What is your story? Well, I mean, I guess if I, I go back to the start of my career, I, I actually went to um, university in, in Toronto here, York University, uh, and I was in my first year in uh, drama, in, in theater of all mm. things I love theater in, in high school. 
I was there maybe a week before I realized, man, these other people really love theater. They <laughs> love acting. They, they're really passionate about this. I was kind of sort of interested in it and I ended up doing an about face and uh, switched to economics, which is a pretty big pivot. Yeah. Went to school, got an economics degree. You know, I, I don't know what I would have done had I not gone into financial planning. I probably would have been in a dark basement, you know, studying government policy or, or something. So thankfully, I went to, to work for a bank, got a taste of the, the financial industry, but uh, frankly was, was disappointed. It was very uh, sales focused and uh, didn't really feel like it was a good fit for me. And, uh, and I, I wish I had this fantastic story about the way I got into fee only, but you know, Sean, I, I was at my mother's house and there was a, a newspaper, a local newspaper sitting on the, the coffee table, one of those like 15 page, you know, little papers that's mostly ads. And I, and I picked it up and there was a help wanted uh, section and there was a job for a fee-only financial planning firm. 20 years ago, I, I didn't know what a fee-only financial planning firm was. I just saw financial planning and said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I, I think I was just finishing my, my CFP designation to become a certified financial planner at the time. And um, I, I spent almost 10 years there. And uh, it was it was a little while before I really even clued into to what fee-only was in, in my first few weeks and months. But once I discovered it. I just absolutely uh, loved it. And um, it was a great firm to work at. But for lifestyle reasons, I uh, decided to start my own company. Self-employment uh, gave me and, and continues to give me flexibility. And I've fallen in love with uh, a, a real niche market within the financial industry that's been really good for me. Wow. Did you keep that newspaper? <laughs> I should have. Man. Yeah. All these years. Again, I, I, if I only I understood the significance at the time, like I said, it was oh, financial planning. So sometimes random uh, situations in your life lead to fantastic opportunities. And I think that's what that was. Yeah. Not that we'll go in this, but it makes you think, is it random? Was it actually randomness? Does that exist? But <laughs> Well, I, I tell you, I don't know if I would have stayed in the financial industry otherwise. I, I yeah. thought about going to teacher's college and, and becoming a teacher. And uh, and in a roundabout way, I, I kind of feel like I am a, a teacher, whether it's through my, my writing or, or through my work with my clients. I feel like I'm teaching financial planning and I'm trying to teach it mm. in a way that uh, people can understand and embrace because I find the, the traditional way that financial advice often is, is provided. It's, you know, look at this chart, look at this graph, sign the dotted line and, and just trust me, right? And I think there's something to be said about being able to communicate and, and educate people so that they buy into making a financial decision. I think it's a way to uh, be much more impactful. Yeah, you know, you said a few key words that I want to touch on. And part of the reason why I'm attracted to your work and wanted to have you on the podcast, I just alluded to stories. And I look at the state of whether it's the US, we have US listeners and Canadian and some UK ones too, I've heard. But this story or the narrative that we have when we look at even facts about what FP Canada, for example, is showing us is that on average, year after year, money is still the highest stress indicator in our lives. We're yeah. becoming more and more in debt every year. And that's not something that we want to progress to as a society. But you, you used some words that were powerful about the um, financial industry was you were disappointed before you found that piece of paper that yeah. with a fee only. Maybe explain a bit more, where was that disappointment? Like elaborate on what were you disappointed about? Well, you know, when I look back and, and I appreciate the, what I learned working at a, at a big five Canadian bank. But, you know, a, a bank is, uh, is a great place for some people to, to be. It wasn't for, for me. Part of the disappointment was that, that that was what the financial industry was in Canada. But again, a big part of it was just the, the sales focus. It wasn't really client service and, and fee only. I think uh, because you're, I mean, I guess you're still selling to a, a certain extent. I sell time to, to clients and we as a firm sell time to our clients. So I guess we all have some sort of conflict of interest. But when your end game isn't a particular product, I think there's something to be said about that. And it's, it's uh, a part of the field in the industry that I've really come to embrace as, as have the others on my team who've been attracted to my business model as well. And, you know, in, in Canada, there's, there's no regulation of the title fee only, like a, a fee only financial planner 
Um, anybody can call themselves a, a fee-only financial planner. I, I sort of consider fee-only to be financial advice that's provided on a, a flat fee or an hourly fee basis. And you could have somebody who sells investments or insurance or other financial products who, who does provide financial planning for a fee who also sells products, right? But uh, there's there's not a lot of people, certainly in, in Canada, about 100 uh, to 200, and, and the stats are even hard to nail down, out of 100,000 financial advisors sell time without selling products. Mm. So it, it's a very small part of the Canadian market, bigger in the U.S. market, uh, but in Canada, I mean, things are dominated by the big banks, of course. Thanks for making that clear is that the fee only is you're selling your time, no products attached, your time and your advice. I would have to think maybe more of your advice because I don't think you guys just sit there and put your clock on and stare at each other. <laughs> Once in a while, we give a real good uh, good recommendation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Selling, selling advice, it's, it's not unlike uh, uh, an accountant or, or a lawyer. And, you know, we, we certainly aspire to to be we more than aspire we we act as if we are professionals we're a professional services firm but i tell you it's it's tricky i mean we're we're in the midst of a, a pandemic here in ontario uh, where i am and i think in alberta where you are we're, we're under lockdown so you know there's not a lot of cocktail parties going on these days unless they're virtual but mm-hmm. i i hate telling people what i do for a living you know you're at a, a party or something or at a barbecue and someone asks you and i sort of i'm a hmm. financial planner and the, and the conversation stops there because they think I'm going to sell them a mutual fund or an insurance policy. I, I wish I, I should say I'm a writer. I you know I write for newspapers and, and magazines or I'm a father or something. I think it'd be a better conversation. Financial planner is a real show uh, stopper. But you know a lot of people think of a financial planner as someone who sells mutual funds and, and insurance. Mm. So it, it, it's not really viewed as a professional designation. I hope that that changes over time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think why I, I appreciate your work is going back to two other words I wrote down, which I think can change that narrative of what the profession is, is you called yourself a teacher and understand, like for your clients to understand. And I think those are really key concepts. And maybe for yourself and your business, how do you think your structure, this fee only, has allowed you to focus on teaching and understanding and when you connect that way with the clients, have you seen their narrative or the story they're telling themselves about the financial planning industry change? Yeah, for sure. I, I can tell you that uh, I can think of meetings that I've I've been in, particularly with new clients that, that I've met for the first time. And, you know, sometimes one or both spouses either admit that they're not very well-versed financially or it's quite clear that that they're not. But the kinds of conversations that we're having are not about emerging markets, stocks or, you know, derivatives or convertible bonds or complex investment topics or or insurance things. It's about, you know, how much do you save? How much do you need to save in order to retire? You know, what age you're going to be when you when you can retire? Can you help your kids out with with university? You know, here's how we save some some money on taxes, or um, it, it's things that are are relatively easy, I think, for for financial lay people who, who are not very well versed to understand, and it's meaningful to to be able to tell somebody, hey, you can retire in two years, or you're going to be okay, or you can afford that new house you're you're considering sometimes we need to be the the voice of reason and sometimes we deliver bad news and we have to tell people you know you're on track to work till you're 75 or you really can't afford to to live in the house that that you're in and you know pay for private school for your kids or go on four vacations a year and you know it's disappointing sometimes to deliver that news but i think it's important because if you don't and you don't know then you just can continue going down the wrong trajectory. So just really great conversations I find we have with clients. It's it's stuff that appeals to everyone as opposed to, you know, just a, a subsection of the people that we work with. Mm. Yeah. And what do you think if you put the client's perspective on, if you had to make an assumption or maybe you've heard from feedback, what what do you feel or get a sense that they appreciate the most about your model and the fee only? I mean, I think there's a great appreciation for the fact that that we don't 
sell anything. We don't sell investments or, or insurance. We don't get referral fees or commissions. If if we were to refer a client to a third party, it would be because it was beneficial for them and not because of any financial motivation. So I feel like there's a, an automatic level of, of trust. Uh, I've talked to a lot of other financial planners who are like in-house certified financial planners of banks and stuff like that about how difficult it is. It's like pulling teeth to get information from clients and they don't want to share everything. And, and we find that people will send us an email and they'll share everything about their lives right from the start. They don't feel any um, pressure. They, they don't feel conflicts of interest. That's certainly part of it. But the other interesting thing is we have clients that we work with once and we never see again. You know, we, we deliver a retirement plan and tell them they're gonna be okay and that's that's all they need. It's the one time in their life that they've they will hire a financial planner. There's other people we, we meet with every few years just for an update or a circumstance circumstances change. There's also people we work with every year, year in and, and year out. And I myself, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I I, I work with a, a number of clients on a regular ongoing basis. And the clients that I work with year in and year out aren't necessarily the most complex clients that I have. They're not necessarily the wealthiest clients that I have. They're people who I may not have imagined would have written a check every year for financial planning advice. But for some people, it's just peace of mind, whether they're single or, or whether they're a couple, you know, to be forced to sit down and, and think about and talk about money at least once a year. And whether it's a, a mortgage renewal or um, buying a new car and trying to decide whether to lease or, or loan it or some sort of change at work or in their lives, I think there's something to be said about being able to ask somebody who doesn't have an ax to grind, who's not your you know, smart aleck brother-in-law that, you know, maybe has a few good ideas, but but you're not quite sure if you, you trust them. So I think there's a real peace of mind factor that uh, a lot of the clients that, that we work with on an ongoing basis really um, really get from, from working with us. You know, you use that word trust and it really spoke to me just because I don't find many people have a place to go to talk about money. We hold so much of our, our worth in terms of money and having an open space to talk about money where you actually trust someone, I think is a, is, is, is a gift that many people don't experience and they hold a lot of guilt or shame around money. And I think creating that level of trust to use your word, I think is a, is a, is a huge asset, potentially even beyond whatever emerging market fund you can slice in to get a bit of a better return. <laughs> and, and sure, there's a place for that. But that trust, if we don't have the trust, that, that market doesn't, or that emerging market piece doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree. So you're a CFP, I'm a CFP, Certified Financial Planning. I was looking at research on when money existed. So like there, there's been forms of money for 5,000 years. And then I, I went narrower to the American dollars been around for like 250 years. And the Canadians about 150 years. So yeah. let's use the 150 or 250 years. We've had this idea of like our dollar. Yeah. And then when you look at financial planning, I saw the first grad of a CFP was like 1973, I think. I didn't even know that. Because huh. it started occurring to me, this phenomenon of financial planning, what is it? And so for, for a long part of humans, we've never had financial plans. Yeah. And we just coexisted. We just, we just got by. We worked until maybe we passed away. This retirement yeah, thing is relatively right. calm, yeah. or recent phenomenon as well. Yeah. Knowing it's a relatively recent thing in human history, financial planning, based on your research, your expertise, your experience with clients, mm -hmm. what is financial planning and what benefits do myself and other consumers get from financial planning? Yeah, I find it's such a, like a, a vague term. When you see stats and, and surveys about the number of people who report having a, a financial plan mm. and the number of people who, you know, have a sense of how much they need to retire or other things that you would think would be part of a financial plan. I've, I've seen surveys that have shown that people don't even really know what a financial plan is. Mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of people, a financial plan is, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've got an RSP and I've got some mutual funds and I, I, I put money in there in February at the last minute and take out a little RSP loan and try to figure out how much my tax refund is going to be. And as you and I know, it's, there's, there's much more to that. I, I think 
certainly a financial plan should include investments. And, and in this day and age, when people are living longer and retirement is longer and fewer have pensions, there's more of a need for investment planning because more of our retirement income is coming from investments. But it, it should also include things like cash flow management, cash flow management being saving and, and spending and, and even debt and, and debt repayment. Uh, it should include tax planning. And, and for a lot of people, they say, oh, yeah, you know, I do tax planning. You know, I send my stuff in, in in April and my accountant does my taxes and I get an invoice. And but but even a lot of accountants don't they do tax compliance. Hmm. They they prepare and submit tax returns, but they don't, don't do tax planning. You know, insurance needs, risk management, um, what type of insurance, what amount of insurance uh, does does one need to protect themselves, their family, their their financial dependents. And estate planning, I think, for a lot of people is, you know, when you, you get old and you've got a bunch of money, then, you know, you should maybe get an estate plan. But most people should have a will, need to worry about beneficiary designations. Even when you're young, you know, you're, you're more likely to become disabled than to die until you're in your 40s. So young people would probably be, not to say better suited, but it's almost uh, at least as important, if not more important, to have powers of attorney and things like that, that, that would appoint someone to make decisions if you were unable to do so. And retirement planning, you know, retirement planning can, can start so far ahead of retirement and help dictate other decisions like, you know, how much you spend on a house and, and how much you save every month and, and how you save. So investments, cash flow, tax insurance, estate, retirement planning, I think those are all the, the components of a financial plan. And, and some people may only need parts some people may do it on a modular basis. They may do it on a modular basis with a financial planner, even a, a fee-only financial planner, or they may do it on a modular basis working with an investment advisor, an insurance agent, mm-hmm. a state lawyer who kind of helps with, with different components. And, and where we really see our value is I'll often tell people, it's not a very endearing term, but I'm a, I sort of see myself as an expert at being a generalist. I'm a generalist in all those different areas and and we can figure out the best way and and how to fit together all the pieces of the puzzle because sometimes I, I was on a webex meeting this morning with a client and and with their accountant and they're about to retire and and we're looking to draw down money out of um out of a corporation and in their case and what they were recommending from a tax perspective didn't really line up from an investment and an estate perspective so again you can have professionals who are great at what they do but but may not be looking at the whole picture, which, which a financial planner, professional financial planner, hopefully can, can do for you. You know, I appreciate that answer. Cause when I was looking up how long has money been around and how relatively new, like financial planning, I actually sat back and went, huh, that's interesting. But your answer made me think is like, yeah, it's new, but our lives have become such more complex than it was yeah. even like 150 years ago. Well, sure. People used to get a job when they were 18 years old and they would work for the same company for, mm-hmm. for 50 years and, you know, they would uh, retire with a pension and they would maybe not live very long yeah. after retirement. So retirement planning used to be a lot easier. It's, it's changed a lot. The gig economy and increasing life expectancies and uh, real estate as an investment asset <laughs> class instead of just you know, pensions and, uh, and mutual funds. So. Yeah. I mean, complex lives have created this need to organize. And when you talked about that, I just really organizing, like organization came to mind where I feel like a lot of us feel a lot of consumers through research and uh, surveys, they just don't feel organized. And it really sounds like you guys are looking at that organization. Maybe talk to where's the value just on organizing your clients' uh, financial affairs? Well, you know, what's interesting because I'd say with the majority of our clients, you know, especially in new clients, not necessarily a client that we work with each and every year, but even a lot of them, we'll, we'll build a, a, a long-term retirement plan. And, and part of that process will involve putting together a net worth statement, which to you and me as certified financial planners may seem pretty straightforward. You know, what are your investments and, and real estate and, you know, mortgage debt balance and, and other things. A net worth statement is really just a summary of somebody's assets mm-hmm. and, and their liabilities. And, and a lot of people 
I find I've never gone through the process of putting everything on one page, especially mm. when you've got this RSP over here and this RESP account that, that, um, you know, grandma, grandpa helped set up, you know, years ago when you had kids and, um, you've got this pension plan with your employer and, you know, you've got two spouses and they've both got all these different accounts. So even the process of building a net worth statement can be really impactful. And, and the other thing that I've found is I'm amazed sometimes how people who are in either relatively good or relatively bad financial situations are completely unaware of, of how good or, or how bad it, it is. Mm. And delivering the good news is better to tell somebody, hey, like you could retire now. You don't need to work five more years, you know, but but even people in a bad situation where you've got to, you know, come in and, and say, look, like you're adding your line of credit every year. Your lifestyle's not sustainable. You're never going to be able to to retire. So again, putting stuff down on on paper, even just from a, a psychological perspective, I know you could you could certainly speak to this. It's just it's not a plan, I think, until you've you've made mm. it, you know, written it down, so to speak, whether it's physically or, or digitally or, mm. or other. As you're saying that, it makes me think the act of writing it down in a context of seeing a planner seems much more proactive than another one that I always hear is when they're applying for a mortgage and the mortgage broker needs everything, they're like, Oh, I have no idea. They put it all on the piece of paper for the mortgage broker. And then they're like, ah, I can't get approved or, you know, cause that's, yeah. I feel like the other only time that people organize are if they pass away. But uh, yeah. so, yeah, I, I really like this idea of organization. And I think again, we have complex lives and having that person being able to organize it, I think is a huge, huge benefit. And it brings then like you're talking about that awareness Mm, yeah, absolutely. And and the other interesting thing that I've found over the years is I've, I've worked with, with lots of people who are very successful at whatever it is they do best in their lives, whether it's farming or, or medicine or teaching or whatever their profession is. But some don't know the first thing about money and, and finances. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, I mean, you know, I was going to say they don't teach you this stuff in school. They're starting to in, in some provinces in, in elementary and, and high school. But certainly most people uh, didn't learn this stuff in, in school. And even those that, that did, I'll, I'll share with you. I, I've got a number of clients who are investment advisors, accountants, insurance agents, you know, people within the financial industry who give advice to others on a little subsection of, of what we do as, as financial planners. And just because you know how to be a portfolio manager and buy and sell stocks professionally doesn't necessarily mean you understand tax implications. It doesn't necessarily mean you understand, hey, how much do I really need to save to, to be okay to, to retire? So um, it, it's amazing when, when I look at the Again, very intelligent, successful people who work with us to to leverage our expertise. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you talked earlier about like the psychological aspect of putting it down. And if I go back to how long humans have had money, we if we go even beyond that, we're we're we are not hardwired to save. Like back in prehistoric days, you would get shunned from the tribe if you started hoarding all the food, and you ate the food because it was going to spoil. We wouldn't have fridges and this blip of like human development right now is so small in our evolutionary terms. We're just not hardwired. So to these smart individuals that you're referring to, they are humans. So we aren't hardwired to do this. So I think that's what's really impactful about the financial planner. And, you know, I was talking to Andrew Hallam, the author this week, he was on the podcast and I heard him on another podcast say that like, he was a very big proponent of index investing and thought, oh, you just need to make these portfolios and you should be good. Maybe you don't need a financial planner. And then I heard him on another podcast saying that, you know what, all the other things really matter. And yeah, it's just neat how people, like we all go through our own, um, I guess, change of thinking, but I really appreciate him because I really look up to him in his books, but uh, he's got a great new book coming out uh, called Balance. But um, I just think it's so neat that people can be open in the financial world to being, hey, maybe my perspective does change. And I really do think that the financial planner on the behavioral side certainly helps out because it's complex. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I think it's it's one of the more interesting things that that I've seen over my career that 
you know, all my studies in, in economics and, and financial modeling and, you know, getting my CFP designation and, and learning income taxes and, and, you know, number crunching, it, it's important. I mean, the numbers behind the financial planning are obviously important, but man, there's, there's meetings where I, I swear 50% of it is, you know, social work or, or psychology and, and, you know, going back to my, my story, it's, it's funny. I want, once in a while I, I tell people this, I think back to, to my time at Europe university and uh, my first year of university when I was doing theater and before switching into economics, I had uh, a psychology class on, on Thursday morning. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of fun my first year at university. Wednesday night was pub night, <laughs> psychology at 8.30 in the morning. I didn't make it very often to class. And I, I think back in retrospect and, and man, I, I wish I'd paid closer attention. That, that psychology training would come in handy. And I think certainly for anybody in the financial industry, particularly uh, any young people that are, are listening, to the extent that you can work on your, your social work and psychology and empathy and, mm. you know, the numbers are, are in a lot of my meetings are, are a minority of, of the, the conversation uh, that, that I'm having with clients. Mm. So the connection I hear is important, hey? Absolutely. It's tougher these days, you know, on, on Zoom, but uh, even then, you know, we, prior to, to COVID, I'd say probably, probably a third of our clients were not in Ontario where, where we are. So we work remotely with people a lot and it's a little tricky. It's a little different, you know, just seeing someone's face on a, on a screen. But, uh, you know, again, I think the business model helps because people are, are willing to get into conversations they may not otherwise be willing to get into with their, their banker or, or other types of financial planners. So I do hope that the financial planning industry continues to develop into more of a professional service and, and mm. it's starting got a ways to go, I think, but we're, we're getting there. That makes me lead into the next question about what do you anticipate or see some trends that are going to come in our industry, financial planning industry in the next 10 years? You know, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of different potential changes or focuses over the course of the next 10 years. I think financial planning is going to be really important from a number of uh, perspectives, I'm biased, uh, of course, but, but bias aside, you know, when you just look at the, the aging uh, demographics and, and baby boomers, you know, retirement, I, I heard a, a stat, I think there's something like a million Canadians who retire every year right now, big, you know, cohort in the population who's transitioning from accumulating money to decumulating their assets in, in retirement. So I think retirement planning is going to continue to be very important. And a lot of traditional investment advisors and a lot of people who've traditionally just got investment advice uh, will be seeking out that that type of retirement planning. There's also going to be a, a significant transfer of uh, wealth. A lot of wealth that that is owned within this country is going to transition to the next generation. A lot of that, that wealth and in certain places is in real estate. I think it's got some really interesting dynamics for, for real estate markets uh, across the, the country. Um, we've talked a bit about investing. I think investing uh, will continue to become more commoditized between robo-advisors and, and all-in-one and asset allocation exchange traded funds. I think investing is obviously still an important part of financial planning, but I think that uh, we're going to continue to see other aspects of the planning process continue to be important. Um, we've talked a little bit about regulation of, of titles. You know, anybody can call themselves a, a fee-only financial planner in any province other than uh, in the province of Quebec, where there are some restrictions. And it really waters down financial planning. And, and certainly for, for myself as a fee-only financial planner, you know, nobody really knows what a fee-only financial planner is because, because the title can be thrown around. Um, I, I really hope that there is more of a fiduciary standard that develops within the financial industry uh, generally, uh, just because there are so many people out there who believe that financial advisors have some sort of a, a requirement to, to give them 
good advice that, that is in their best interest. And, and there's not a, uh, generally not a best interest uh, uh, standard. There's a, a suitability standard for most financial advice that is given that advice needs to be suitable to the client. And what is suitable and what is in their best interest is, is sometimes uh, different. So lots of stuff on, on from the, the industry side of, of things that, that I think I could see changing. But with individuals, you know, you're, you're in Edmonton, I'm, I'm in, you know, outside of Toronto, different situations, I think, with, with real estate. Although I know real estate's starting to heat up sort of everywhere in the country. But here in Toronto, last, you know, 25 years, uh, real estate has just sort of gone straight up. There's a lot of people who believe it will continue to, to do so. So housing issues for, for young people, housing issues for older people, whether you're looking to buy a house that you can't afford or, or whether you're thinking about downsizing a, a house that could significantly advance your retirement, a lot of housing issues as well. So lot, lots of neat stuff. I could go on and, and on, but, uh, you know, a lot, lots of interesting stuff. And it, it, you know, makes me excited with the next 10 years of, of my career because I've got a a few good years uh, left <laughs> before I'll, I myself will be retiring. So, yeah, wow, lots of stuff there we could dive into. Uh, I noticed that there was no mention. This is a joke. Cryptocurrency and how if we just put our money in, maybe we can all retire now. Well, that's just it, right? Yeah, and it's amazing when, when you look at what's happened in the last year in this pandemic with uh, cryptocurrency and, and day trading and. There's been, you know, people that have been made, you know, millionaires with very small investments. And uh, I think that's good and, and bad. I think it's, it's good to see, in some regards, people that, uh, you know, can, can take a risk and, and make an investment and, you know, have a, a, a good financial outcome like that. It, it, it levels the playing field somewhat financially in, in some situations. Generally, I think it's a, it's a negative because especially young people and, and social media and, and TikTok mm. and you know, you think that uh, it's just as easy as, as buying some crypto and, you know, you can retire and it's it's not that that easy. So, yeah, you know, hopefully, if nothing else, it, it brings more awareness to the importance of financial advice and decisions. And I don't know about you, but when I was 12 years old, I, I didn't know what cryptocurrency was or, or GameStop or, and, and my kids are, are around that age and uh, they see this stuff on, on TikTok and they're they're thinking about and talking about money. So there is sort of a, a silver lining, I think, to the crypto. Yeah. Wow, 12 years old and they're talking about it. Certainly, yeah, no, not me at 12. You know, um, I had Preet Banerjee and uh, David Lewis from Beeworks. We were talking about GameStop. Yeah. And David said something which just, you know, I thought it was, I think it's David or our pre, one of them just basically said, this is just legalized gambling and it yeah. should just be called that so that people aren't misconstruing that I'm investing. Exactly. It's, it's not true investing. It's speculation and yeah. you could become, you know, wildly wealthy or, or you could lose everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the thing. And, and it, it's hard too, as a, as a financial advisor, I, I know I've, I've had, conversations with uh, with people about about things like that and when you hear a story of someone who's actually made a bunch of money on a speculative investment like that like yeah there's going to be people who who do but generally speaking mm-hmm. you can't have everybody you know getting wealthy overnight investing in speculative stocks or, or cryptocurrencies or there's always going to be some outliers but uh, generally speaking the the best way to accumulate wealth is boring and not the sort of thing that you would uh, tell your friends and, and mm. talk about at cocktail parties. So. <laughs> no. There's this study that from a behavioral finance perspective that it talks about, it asks participants in the study, what are people more likely to die from a shark attack or pieces of an airplane falling on you? <laughs> and like the majority of the people say shark attack and it, it's intended to set up this answer, I guess, I, I think it's intended, but it draws on the behavioral finance heuristic of availability bias that we draw on all the information that we have available we see more yeah. shark attacks we've watched jaws sure. and you know with tiktok and uh the people who we hear who do well on the gamestop or other cryptocurrencies i think it's a big part would be understanding all of these biases that we have in ourselves that make us think like oh i can do this and that's i guess another bias there's the self-attribution bias so i think 
hopefully maybe a little bit hopefully the, i'm not on tiktok but maybe the tiktokers can start showing more behavioral finance and being like look at this is highlighting all of our our bad dis- money decision like pre- predisposed yeah. money decisions but sorry yeah. i didn't mean to go down cryptocurrency but um i appreciate your insight on that sure i want to talk about that idea of real estate that you talked about i i hear in edmonton People talk about real estate where people want to get uh, wealthy off real estate. Lots of people do, similar to, I guess, what we're talking here with uh, cryptocurrency. But by and large, what is your sentiment or what value, not not financial value, but like what impact can real estate have on average? I'm talking the average person's financial life. And I want to draw on this article that you wrote about $100,000 it was a recent article that you, you just talked about with inflated prices here in Edmonton. Well, everybody everywhere right now, lumber is increasing. I was talking to builder the other day. He's like people, houses are going up a hundred, $200,000 for bigger houses, but they're still building. So if you could touch on that, that, like that idea in your article of like, what is the cost of that extra amount that we're just going to jump in the real estate market? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, definitely, again, being being in the greater Toronto area, real estate, real estate, real estate, there's a lot of people who, you know, for the last generation, real estate has just gone gone up. And there's a lot of people who have been made wealthy by, by way of real estate. And there is a real fear of missing out that uh, that recency bias, you know, speaking of biases that, that people have, if, if real estate's gone up for the last 25 years, it's got to go up. For the next 25 years, there's places around here in the greater Toronto area, real estate's up 25% in the last year in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense, you know, when salaries and, and wages are going up 2% a year, real estate can't go up 20% per year forever. So I think one of the big challenges with, with spending too much on, on real estate is it inhibits your ability to do other things. If somebody has no available cash flow to do things like contribute to an RRSP to save for retirement or an RESP to save for their children's education, then from a financial perspective and a financial planning perspective, that can be a a negative. There are certainly people that I meet who um, a, a housing downsize will be part of their retirement plan or they will carry debt throughout their, their life to, to stay in the home that, that they're in. Um, and that money side is, is important. You know, we'll build out long-term plans and, and try to show somebody, hey, this is the long-run impact. But I think there's something to be said about just your ability to do other things. Like if you buy too much house and you don't have the cash flow to go on vacation, with your family and, you know, do things that, that are important from a, a non-financial, from like a lifestyle and a, an emotional uh, perspective. I, I think that can be a real negative. So I'm not um, anti real estate. I, I own a, a, a home that, you know, I, I have low expectations for its future growth coming off of this, this high point. That's okay. It's not an investment for me. It's a, mm-hmm. a place to live, but I, I think it's really important that when you go to the bank and the bank says, okay, you can get a mortgage for, for X dollars, that doesn't really matter. It's just how much the bank will, will lend you. You almost have to sit down and say, okay, like what's, what else is going on in my life? There are people who doing crosswords is what they want to do on the weekend. And that's, that's a big Saturday night for, for them. And that's fine. There are other people who want to go on four vacations per year or start a business or go back to school or do other things. So I think it's really important that a bank approval for a mortgage is is part of it. But people really need to sit down and sort of do their own number crunching and say, hey, how much house can I afford based on the lifestyle I want, based on when I want to retire, based on my other goals? And I think that's part of the beauty of, of financial planning, that uh, there's just there's no rules of thumb. There's no you know, metrics where you can say, yeah, this is, this is a good decision on real estate or something else. You really have to, to look at it on a, a personalized basis. But I do worry about people who believe that real estate or cryptocurrency or, you know, whatever else is, is going to, you know, solve all of their financial problems or, you know, financial planning is a, a slow, steady, boring race. And, um, you know, I, I think people need to to make big decisions like real estate with with lots of foresight. Mm. 
You made me think of two really, I think, important things that we just don't do in this complex world that we've been talking about now is think and reflect. And your article actually made me think and reflect on real estate because you did a wonderful job laying out the two options between paying $100,000 more and just amortizing that over the 25 years versus investing it. And I like how you didn't really say this is the way one way or another. It was just yeah. like, what are you willing to give up? And I, th- I think you talked about it could be like an equal of a latte a day. You talked about that vacation. But the point yeah. I want to make is that I hear you really talking about just make some intentional decisions that are based on yourself. Yeah. And, and I like how you said no rule of thumb, because at one point I was going to ask you, what do you think the percentage of a house that should be spent on? But I agree. I, I wish there, there were an answer. It depends. I always tell people, you know, it, it, you know, people ask me sometimes, you know, how much do I need to, to retire or, or, you know, what, what, sh- what should I invest in or, or something like that? My answer is always, I have no idea. I mean, yeah. it depends, you know, how, how much you need to retire. I mean, you retire at 55 or, or 75, what's your life expectancy? Do you have a pension? Um, and likewise with the real estate, again, you can have two um, couples, both of whom have, you know, 1.5 children and a, a golden retriever and, who live very different lives in terms of their spending and their retirement goals and aspirations or inheritance they're expecting from their family versus, you know, financial support. They feel they may need to provide for an aging parent. And I think that's the the thing. There's, there's really no right or wrong answers even in, in finance. There's very few things in, in personal finance where I'll say, don't do that or that's bad. There's varying degrees of good and bad, and and what's good for one person may may be bad for another. Hmm. You know, I that answer is just perfect. I really really like that perspective. And everyone always says this: they call it personal finance for a reason. It's personal for sure. So important. Maybe I haven't been to Pickering, Ontario, but maybe it's beautiful. Maybe it's a place that you would envision yourself at age ninety-five when life's coming to an end. But take yourself to wherever that is in the world. And you're on a front porch looking over like a field, mountain, lake, whatever it is. And you're just reflecting on the, the life, the journey, your story. And you're tasked, you task yourself with writing a letter to your kids' kids about what you've learned about creating or having a positive relationship with money. Huh. What would be included in that letter? That's a fantastic question. You know, so I'm going to try not to go too much off on a tangent, but um, you mentioned Andrew Hallam earlier in the in the podcast, and I know Andrew and uh, have you know done a lot of work with Canadian expats that uh, that live in and and work or, or retire in other parts of the, the world. So I I have lived vicariously through many people in in much more exotic places than Pickering. So. I, I doubt the Pickering's lovely. Don't get me wrong. It's near Lake Ontario. The, the lake's five minutes away. I, I don't know if I picture myself sitting on a porch in, in Pickering, but you know, in terms of money, one of the things that professionally I have learned and I'm very appreciative for having learned um, from people that are older and smarter than I is that money, it, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still get cancer. You, can still get divorced. You can still, you know, miss out on your children's childhood because you're too busy with your head down, working too hard. And uh, all the money in the world can't fix that, can't, can't, you know, solve that problem. And I think if somebody had the choice of having too little money or too much money, most people are going to pick too much. But, you know, the, the incremental benefit from saving more and being wealthier, although it's important to, to be prudent financially, there's so many problems in life money can't solve. And from a, a personal perspective, and this is a lesson I've learned in the last couple of years, my my mother died just over two years ago, unfortunately, a couple of days after her 66th birthday. And, um, you know, I, I helped her with with her own finances and, and retirement planning and you know, she was supposed to to live until she was 95 years old. And, you know, I, I spend all, all this time, you know, working with people and building out these long-term retirement plans, make sure they don't run out of money. And, uh, you know, my mom didn't run out of money. She, she ran out of time. And, uh, you know, she, she used to tell me, you know, oh, you know, Jason, money won't keep you warm at, at night. 
And it wasn't necessarily a reflection on, on me or my own attitude towards money, but it was, it was just something that, that she learned and, and she tried to, to pass along. And it has really personally and professionally struck me lately. I've, I've had a couple of clients that have died young and there's, there's a fine balance between um, saving for tomorrow and living for today. And I used to be all for professionally anyways, you know, saving for the future, making smart choices. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn now. I'm, I'm equally worried to tell somebody to save too little as I am to tell them to save too much and work too long. So I think there's a real fine balance for anyone listening out there. And, and I think it's one of the biggest challenges I have with, um, you know, like fire and, and working hard and not spending and, and not living in ways that, um, that, that you could or you would or you should if you knew how long you would, would actually live, right? So, yeah, money, money is funny and, and making good financial decisions are, are really important, but uh, you really need to do, do what's best for you and, and have a balance between today and tomorrow. Wow, great answer. I appreciate that. For sure. And, you know, we've talked about Andrew a couple of times and you mentioned the word balance in his book, new books called balance. So we might as well slip a copy of his book and that in the will too for them. Yeah. Right. All right, Jason, thank you so much for joining uh, me today. Can you point people to where they can find your writing more information about you? Yeah. Where, where could people find the most resources for, for yeah, you? Yeah, for sure. So, so my company is uh, objective, Financial Partners. You can hit us up on ObjectiveFinancialPartners.com. These days, I write monthly for the Financial Post, so you can look for me there. Money Sense, I write for weekly. And um, Katie Money Saver, I write for quarterly. Do a lot of interviews as well and, and love the opportunity to educate people going back to teaching. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Jason Heath. CFP as in certified financial planner. And um, yeah, I just uh, really appreciate you having me on, Sean. It's been a great conversation. And uh, thank you for, for uh, hosting me today. Yeah, thank you so much. Wow. Again, so much fun. I really, really enjoy these conversations as our guests are willing to share their wisdom and knowledge with you, me, and everyone else listening. And speaking of listening, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. Until next time, have a great week.